Well, in my opinion, we're living in the greatest country on earth. I know it's becoming less popular, less in vogue to say that, but I'm not going to apologize for being grateful for living in America. Uh, even with all of its flaws and divisions and struggles, and there are plenty, do you know that people from all over the world still flock to this nation every single year? In fact, do you know that annually over one million people migrate to the United States from other countries? Far and away, the U.S. has more immigrants than any other nation on earth. There are more than 40 million people who were born in other countries living in the U.S. today. That accounts for one-fifth, 20% of the migrants in the entire world. Okay? There's a reason people want to leave where they're from and come here more than any other place on earth. The truth is we're profoundly blessed to live in America where we continue to reap the benefits and blessings of a country that was born out of the convictions of a group of people who simply wanted to be free. And you think about the lives that have been impacted over the past couple of centuries since the inception of this nation, and not just here, but all over the world. Hundreds of millions of lives worldwide forever changed because of the convictions of a few. That's the power of convictions, by the way. Of course, we all have them, don't we? The fact is, convictions shape the way we live our lives every day, how we make decisions daily, even the small ones, whether we realize it or not. The way we live day in and day out, the way we interact with other people, the way we eat and drive and work and play, it's all born out of the convictions that capture our hearts, those firmly held beliefs that govern our lives and guide our decisions. And those convictions ultimately lead us to make certain commitments. Right? I'm committed to not eating a dozen Krispy Kreme donuts every day for breakfast. Don't be mistaken, I want to eat a dozen Krispy Kreme donuts every day for breakfast. But I've made a commitment not to because of a conviction that it might end my life early. Right? I'm committed to paying my bills. I'm committed to taking care of my family. I'm committed to being a good friend. I'm committed to loving the church. Because of my convictions, I've made certain commitments. And where do those convictions that drive my commitments come from? The commands of God, the word of God. Okay? In, the, in the gospel according to John, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I've loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another, John 13, 34, and 35. And because I believe that his word is true, I have a conviction that I'm to love you like he loves me. And so I've made a commitment to love you the very best that I can. doesn't mean I'll always get it right, but I still strive to honor that commitment. You see, there's a, a conviction rooted in his command to love one another that results in a commitment that profoundly affects how I live my life every day. Uh, and I'm not a big fan of alliteration, by the way, but listen, the enemy of those commitments that come out of our convictions that are rooted in his commands is another word that starts with the letter C, which is compromise. Because when you compromise your convictions, particularly when that compromise uh, becomes a pattern in your life, you will eventually compromise your commitments. And once you do that, uh, it's impossible to carry out his commands. Okay, compromise is the insidious, life-stealing, joy-robbing, strength-sapping enemy 
of the Christian life. The fact is, compromise is treachery for the follower of Christ. Consider the life of Peter. A disciple of Jesus, a follower of Christ, he personally walked and served and lived with Jesus day after day as a part of Jesus' inner circle, even among those 12 who were closest to him. Along with James and John, only Peter was present when Jesus raised the daughter of Jairus in Mark 5.37. Then again, only those three were with Jesus when he was transfigured on the mountain in Matthew 17.1. And only Peter and John were given the special responsibility of preparing the final Passover meal in Luke 22.8. You couldn't get any closer to Jesus than Peter was. And yet at times, Peter was more concerned with what people thought than he was with what Jesus thought. And in those times, he compromised his convictions. In Matthew 22, after Jesus explains to the disciples that he must suffer and die, Peter says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, meaning Jesus, turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) Ouch. You're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of men. In John 13, when Jesus began washing the disciples' feet, Peter says to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. John 18, as Jesus was preparing to give himself up peacefully to the Roman soldiers who had come to lead him to his death, Peter drew a sword and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant, and Jesus rebuked him, saying, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? You see, even as close to Jesus as Peter was, there was still a pattern of compromise in Peter's life because he was more focused on the things of man than he was the things of God. And that compromising of his convictions is what ultimately led him to compromise his commitment to Jesus in the courtyard of the high priest when he denied Jesus three times. Mark 14, Luke 22, John 18. Okay, it all all starts with compromise. Think about it. What caused Adam to fall? What caused Moses to fall? What caused Jonah to fall? What caused David to fall? What caused Peter to fall? Compromise. It starts with our convictions when we're fixed on the things of man more than the things of God, which leads to compromise in our commitments, which prevents us from carrying out his commands for our lives. Compromise is treachery for the follower of Jesus Christ. It is the enemy of the Christian life, and it is the ruin of our testimony. Yet at the same time, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. Isaiah 53, 6, we are all guilty of the sin of Adam, of Moses, of Jonah, of David, of Peter. We have all compromised at times in our lives. We have all, every single one of us gone astray to his own way. Not one of us is guiltless. But we're still commanded in Scripture by the Apostle Paul to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Colossians 3, 5. In other words, put to death the ways of man. The way of man is to compromise your convictions whenever it suits you. So how exactly do we manage to put to death the ways of man? Well, just before this verse in Colossians 3, 2, Paul says, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Same thing Jesus told Peter. It's seeing the big picture. It's looking to God before we look to ourselves. It's focusing on His will instead of ours. It's putting others before ourselves. It's God's way instead of our way. This is the lesson that Peter had to learn, and it's the lesson that we must learn if we are to live without compromise. And I can't think of a better example of living without compromise than what we find in our story today as we continue working our way through the book of Esther. 
where God's people, the Jews, were living in exile because of their own compromise. And now their very existence at this part in the story is under imminent threat because of the compromise of a very famous Jew, King Saul, some 600 years earlier, who compromised his own convictions and his own commitments, and then ultimately even God's commands, which we'll talk about more in a few moments. So this entire dilemma facing the Jews was brought about by one compromise after another, after another, after another, until someone finally decides to take a stand, right? until someone finally decides to live without compromise, which turns out to be irresistibly contagious as the uncompromising life of the one spreads to another, then to another, until God's people as a whole rise up as one, and as we'll see today, begin to once again realize their God-given destiny as his chosen and victorious people. And I'm telling you, this is exactly what we need among God's people today. Men and women of conviction who are willing to live without compromise. And it, it only takes one or two who refuse to compromise their convictions and their commitments as they carry out God's commands and others will follow. Sometimes you just have to be the first one. Listen, the, when that happens, the church will be emboldened. His purposes accomplished in and through us uh, begin to fall like dominoes when we choose to live without compromise. It's a profound thing to behold. So let's pick the story up where we left off last time at Esther chapter 9. And if you were here, you'll remember that Haman, a descendant of Agag, who was the ancient enemy of the Jews, was hanged on the gallows, but not before successfully convincing the king of Persia to issue an irrevocable decree that called for the complete and utter annihilation of the Jews. And so, in response, after the true nature of Haman's evil plot was exposed by Mordecai and Esther, uh, both of them, the king issues a second decree, allowing the Jews to defend themselves from the coming attacks. In effect, he's authorizing civil war in his own kingdom. And so we pick up the story there, the narrative. The, the story here has reached a fevered pitch. The climax of all the drama, the secrets kept, the true motives hidden, backdoor deals and death sentences issued, and now the hour has come. All of the plotting of God's enemies against his people and the counterplots of our protagonist Mordecai and Esther have all led to this moment as those seeking to kill the Jewish people mount their attack. Let's read it, Esther chapter 9, with the first four verses. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the satraps, the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. First Haman, the greatest authority in all the Persian Empire, second only to the king, falls before Mordecai, and now all of those throughout the kingdom who would rise against the Jews, intending to gain mastery over them, experience the very opposite of what they'd hoped for, as God's people gained mastery over those who hated them, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. And the phrase, 
gain mastery, by the way, in these verses, it's the Hebrew word shalat. It means to, uh, to gain complete dominance or power over someone else. It's used to describe usually a king's dominion and rule over a land. So just to be clear, uh, this wasn't merely a matter of the Jews winning some street fights or some skirmishes here and there. No, this was complete and total domination over their enemies, led by Mordecai, which is truly astonishing when you consider that just five years earlier, Mordecai was a nobody in Persian society. He held no claim to power in the Persian court, no ability to effect change in Persian society, no respect from the pagans that he lived among, no stature or honor among the leaders or even the commoners throughout the provinces of Persia. Mordecai was not feared or famous or mighty. He commanded the attention of no one in power throughout the kingdom. On the contrary, Haman the Amalekite and all who hated the Jews held the reins of power. And yet on this historically momentous day, all the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. How is it that so much has changed in just five years? Right? Does, does everyone now fear Mordecai solely because the king issued a new decree? Or is it simply because his adopted daughter became queen? Well, no, actually. Of course, God did use Esther's position and influence to certainly help carry out Mordecai's plan. But the makings of Mordecai's greatness began long before Esther ever became queen. And long before the second decree was ever issued, listen, the very moorings of his power and influence and greatness were anchored in the fact that throughout his entire life, Mordecai refused to compromise his convictions. At great cost to himself, he raised Esther, a young Jewish girl with no prospects of her own for a great future as far as they knew at the time, a girl who was not his biological daughter, a girl who held no promise to advance Mordecai's position or stature in life at the time that he took her in at least. She was just one more mouth to feed. Yet he chose to raise this girl as his own, to nurture and teach and provide and protect her because, why? He was a man of convictions. A great danger to himself, he foiled an assassination plot against the pagan king who held all authority over him and his people in exile. And for five years, Mordecai received not even a thank you from the king or anyone else in the royal court, but he stood up for the king anyway. Why? Because he was a man of convictions. At great peril to the very existence of everyone and everything that he loved, he refused to bow to Haman, the enemy of the Jews, because despite the threat of dying the most horrible death, along with his people being wiped off the face of the earth, Mordecai was a man of convictions, which meant he would not bow to the ancient enemies of God, no matter the cost. Mordecai was a man of great convictions, which he demonstrated throughout his life, but that was also noticeably in great contrast to what the Persians were used to. The people of Persia were watching while Mordecai stood over and over again, even as everyone else bowed before Haman. The word was out. This was the talk of the town. This Jew who refused to compromise his convictions, even before the most powerful among them, and even under the threat of complete annihilation. You understand this was uncommon to the Persians. They were used to people like Haman, who once his own life was threatened, bowed immediately before his enemies, even in violation of his own country's laws, to try and save his own skin. Haman was a man without convictions. 
In fact, he was a bitter, hateful, prideful little man without virtue or any redeemable qualities whatsoever. A man who thought of himself much like the Persian king who had appointed him better than everyone else. It's not hard to see why the fear of Mordecai had fallen on the Persians and why he was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces and he grew more and more powerful. Mordecai was cut from a different cloth than the average Persian. In fact, he was head and shoulders above even the most exceptional Persians as we see with the king himself and his right-hand man, Haman. Mordecai stood out from the crowd because he refused to compromise his convictions and because of it, everyone took notice. And his fame and power and influence spread and fear fell upon all who would oppose God's people because of him. Was it easy for Mordecai to live without compromise, to do all the things he did? Was that easy? Of course not. There was great cost involved. There was great danger involved. There was great peril involved, even to those he loved, because he chose to live without compromise. But just look at what God was able to accomplish through him because of it. What a lesson this is for all of us today. We would probably all like to think that when faced with some great test of our faith and convictions, that we would rise to the challenge and meet that test head on without compromise. But the truth is, if we're not willing to live without compromise when the little tests in life come, then we probably won't be able to when the big tests in life come. And by the way, if that statement is at all convicting to you, just rest assured it's convicting to me as well. I'm preaching to myself here. How easy is it for us when someone questions our faith, our convictions, our positions on subjects that were rarely ever discussed in public years ago, but now are very much at the forefront of public dis, uh, discourse, subjects that demand we take a position on one side or the other. How easy is it for us to avoid those conversations or to try and straddle the proverbial moral fence or to try and talk our way out of sounding too absolute about our positions for fear of offending others or losing favor or popularity with the ever-growing chorus of voices in pop culture, including much of the church, by the way, who are backpedaling on the authority of Scripture as fast as they can. If we're not willing to stand up in defense of the gospel when our popularity is at stake, how are we ever going to take a stand when our lives are at stake? I don't think we will. When we're alone and that subtle and insidious voice of the enemy whispers in our ear that it's okay to compromise our convictions as long as no one else is around and we can cheat a little or lie a little or lust a little or steal a little, how easy is it to compromise in those moments when we think it will affect no one else? But if we're not willing to live without compromise when no one is watching, how will we ever live without compromise when everyone is watching? I don't think we will. Because we don't suddenly become men and women of conviction when the big tests in life come. No, it starts in the little things, the small tests, the quiet times when we refuse to compromise our convictions and no one else notices or rewards us or compliments us for our stand for righteousness. Okay, if you want to do something nice for somebody downtown who's living on the street, don't take a selfie and put it on Facebook. Come on. Listen, over time, living without compromise becomes a part of your fabric 
we become characterized by that kind of living, which is what enables us to refuse to compromise our convictions when the big tests in life come. When everyone's watching, how many moments, days, years did Mordecai take care of a young girl who was not his own when no one was paying attention or watching? Yet he nurtured that girl who ended up inheriting, hear me, those same convictions from Mordecai. It was five years before anyone bothered to notice that Mordecai saved the king's life. For five years, no one took the trouble to compliment or reward him for his selfless act of courage and valor. Yet he didn't complain or whine. He didn't make an Instagram post. He just continued to faithfully serve the king. And it was to be the morning of his own death that Mordecai was finally recognized for his uncompromising convictions and refusing to bow to Haman or to give in to his evil plot. And it was only then that Mordecai was spared and elevated to a place of honor and authority. Mordecai refused to compromise his convictions and the result was not only that he was rewarded, but people everywhere took notice and even those who were not Jews claimed to be Jews because they wanted to be associated with Mordecai and his people. Okay, if you want to have influence in this life, you have to live without compromise and along the way you have to accept the cost associated with living that kind of life because it isn't easy. And we won't always get it right. And I'm sure we can all attest to that. I certainly can. But when we own our own mistakes, when we confess our failures, when we repent of our sin, which is all a part of living up to your convictions, people, they take notice. And even when they don't agree with you, listen, this is so true. Even when people don't agree with you, if you live, if you live according to your convictions, you will have influence. Because people respect others who live without compromise, even those they don't agree with. It's precisely why the fear of Mordecai fell on everyone in the Persian kingdom, both Jews and Gentiles, because of the way he lived his life without compromise. Let's keep reading verses 5 through 10. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed Parshandatha and Dalphon and Espatha and Paratha and Adaya, Adalia, excuse me, and Eridatha and Parmashta and Erisai and Eridai and Vaisatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. So once again, these verses underscore the absolute dominance, first of all, that the Jews exercise over their enemies in just a day. It's amazing what you can accomplish when God is on your side and you refuse to compromise, even in one day of your life. And then the ten sons of Haman are named as they fall prey to the Jews, and yet the Jews uh, did not touch the plunder, even though the edict specifically said that they could. Listen, these are both really significant points in the larger story here, which we're going to come back to in a few moments. Let's keep reading for now, 11 through 14. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it please the king, 
Let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. So it's a decisive and devastating victory over their enemies in just one day. And the king, quite proud of his accommodation of the favored queen, says in effect, Look, Esther, at all that has been done for you in just one day. Look at all the people the Jews have killed. Now, is there anything else you'd like for me to do for you? To which sweet little Esther replies, Well, yeah, today was a good start. Now let's take one more day to finish the job. Kill every last one of our enemies. And while we're at it, how about you take the dead bodies of the ten sons of Haman and hang them high on the gallows? <laughs> wow, okay. I mean, at first glance, it seems a bit harsh, especially for Esther, this lovely, respectful, obedient Jewish girl who always seems to be slow to speak and very careful with the words when she does it. A casual reading, this seems like nothing more than a vengeful bloodlust from the very last person you'd expect it from. But listen, there's, a, there's far more going on here than meets the eye. This wasn't simply some kind of uncontrolled rage or aimless violence on Esther's part. Now, this was actually an impeccably calculated and thoughtful move in order to fulfill an ancient promise by God, which she was committed to doing. And to that end, Esther refused to compromise her commitment. Okay, 600 years earlier, God commanded Saul to wipe out the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15. And he was careful to specify through the prophet Samuel in verse 3 that Saul was to devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. In other words, no spoil, right? This is according to God's original command, by the way, in Deuteronomy 25, uh, 19, nearly 400 years before that. In other words, no survivors, no prisoners, no plunder, no exceptions. God was crystal clear. But that's not what Saul did. Instead, he spared Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs, and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. Verse 9. Saul compromised his commitment to serve God, which ultimately led to his failure in carrying out the command of God. And yet this failure of Saul wasn't, uh, it wasn't a spur-of-the-moment lapse in judgment. No, this was yet one more compromise by Saul in a long line of compromises. It had begun, uh, become a pattern in his life beginning some 13 years earlier with a much simpler and seemingly innocuous, harmless act of compromise. Back in 1 Samuel 10.8, Samuel commanded Saul to go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Then chapter 13 we find Saul at Gilgal waiting for Samuel to arrive before making the offerings to God in preparation for war with the Philistines. But the people begin to grow impatient, right? And so Saul begins to feel the pressure to act, to compromise his conviction to wait on Samuel because he was more concerned about pleasing people than he was with pleasing God. And so as the pressure mounts in one seemingly simple act of compromise, right, I'm, I'm just going to... Make the sacrifices before Samuel gets here. No big deal. The same thing's going to happen. But then Samuel arrives and he says to Saul, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. 
Fast forward 13 years later and Saul compromises his commitment to carry out God's command in completely destroying the Amalekites, particularly the king and members of his family as we just read. In fact, listen, if you study Saul through the scriptures, you find that compromise characterized much of his life and the consequences reverberate not only in Saul's own life, but for all of God's people for centuries to come as we've seen here in the story of Esther. Interestingly, by the way, According to rabbinical tradition, during the time period between Saul sparing King Agag's life and Samuel hacking him to pieces with a sword, Agag was allowed to be with his wife, during which time she conceived a son who had a descendant generations later named Haman. You see, because of a pattern of compromise in Saul's life centuries earlier, The Amalekites continued to plague the people of Israel throughout its history, but Esther was determined to do something about it. She was committed to finishing what Saul would not. And so although it was customary in ancient warfare when a leader was killed to wipe out his entire family in order to prevent any type of vengeful coup in the future, what Esther was doing here with the ten sons of Haman was not simply a matter of routine military strategy. No, this was personal because these 10 sons were the remnant that represented everything detestable about those ancient enemies of the Jews, the Amalekites. In fact, not only were they Haman's remaining uh, offspring, the descendants of Agag, but they were given what are called diva names, which were the names of Persian spirits that were worshipped as minor deities or minor gods during the reign of King Ahasuerus. And later, these diva were actually regarded as demons by the Persian people themselves. So Esther, not willing to even allow the perception of compromise when it came to the enemies of God, she makes sure that these 10 sons of Haman were not only killed, but hung high on the gallows for everyone to see, leaving no doubt that this time, as far as she was concerned, the commitment to God had finally been fulfilled. No survivors, no prisoners, no plunder, no exceptions. There was a finality and a completeness to her decision to continue to pursue God's enemies with a brutality that ended with the very embodiment of evil, Haman and his sons hanging on wooden stakes for all to see, which I believe is a foreshadowing of the completeness, the finality and brutality of God's work putting sin to death. Of course, through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, the embodiment of perfection, who took our sin upon himself and hung on a wooden cross for all to see. In the case of Esther, who is a type of Christ, and through Jesus Christ himself, there was no compromising their commitments, which resulted in the fullness of the Father's plans being realized through them. While on the contrary, when we compromise our commitments to God, listen, two things fail to be realized in our lives. First, the fullness of God's plan for us. In 1 Samuel 15, 23, after Saul failed to carry out his commitment to God, Samuel said to him, because... You've rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. Right now, Saul was still the king at that point, And he continued to be for almost two more decades. But he did not accomplish all that he could have for God because he compromised his commitments, which showed up most poignantly in the last several years of his life that he spent chasing David, tormented by the idea of David becoming king instead of leading God's people as his chosen one. And when we fail to follow through to fulfill our commitments to God and his people, we miss out on the fullness of a life spent completely devoted to him because we're distracted with other things, chasing other pursuits, 
thinking that we're preserving and promoting ourselves when all we're really doing is cheating ourselves out of all the blessing and purpose and reward that he has for us. Listen, ultimately, compromise always leads to loss. Okay? Compromise always leads to loss. It never leads to gain. When we compromise our commitments to God, we fail to realize the fullness of God's plan for us. And secondly, the full impact that we could have on the world around us fails to be realized. After Saul compromised his commitment to Samuel to wait on his arrival before offering sacrifices in 1 Samuel 13, Samuel says to him, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Look at what would have been done in this earth through you, but now your kingdom shall not continue. Again, there was not only loss to Saul personally as a result of his compromise, but his impact on future generations was lost as well. All right, look, when you walk away from a ministry, from a marriage, from a friendship, from the commitments that you've made to God and to his people, the impact that you could have had is lost. The people that would have been ministered to, the souls that could have been snatched from the fire, the character that God could have formed in others through you, the life-changing experiences that are forged in the fires of difficulty when people refuse to compromise, to give up and walk away, even though that would be far easier than staying and working through those difficulties, those life-altering moments. Listen, they become legacies that live on in others for generations because of the impact we have in the lives of other people that we happen to be in relationship with now. Those moments, those legacies are lost when we compromise and give up and give in and walk away. Now listen, the grace of God can overcome all of that. But you have to make that commitment, right? We all fail, we all fall short at times, we've all blown it. I make sure that Uh, honest self-evaluation with repentance to follow is a regular part of my life. It's not fun, but it's a regular part of my life. Why? Because all we like sheep have gone astray. You can come back, but you have to make that decision, that commitment, based on those convictions rooted in the commands of God. Okay, We all need to revisit those commitments in our lives from time to time to remind ourselves exactly what is at stake. But I'll tell you, I've known people my entire life, and you probably have too. I know folks who can't seem to stay committed to much of anything. And yet they make commitments, one after another. But as soon as that ministry or that relationship becomes uninteresting or unexpectedly different than what they anticipated or they're offended in some way, and listen, they may even have a right to be offended. But instead of honoring that commitment anyway and staying the course and working through those issues, they compromise their commitment and move on to other pursuits that they think will better preserve and promote them. Honestly, I can tell you that most of those folks that I know who live that way are constantly experiencing less than they desire. They're constantly getting less than they'd hoped for. They're constantly being let down by their experiences and their relationships. Why? Because compromise always leads to loss. It never leads to gain. And so when we fail to fulfill those commitments, when difficulty comes, we never learn to overcome, right? If we just run away from all of our problems, and in the process, we often leave a trail of hurting people behind who never experience all that they could have from us because we compromised that commitment and never made it right. 
Esther could have refused to go to the king when Mordecai first asked her to. What would have happened? The Jews would have been killed. Mordecai would have been killed. But she would have remained the queen and no one would have been the wiser. But instead, Esther chose to risk everything. She refused to compromise her commitments and the result was stunning. And not only did she get to experience the fullness of all that God had for her, the honor, the love of her people, the devotion of her adopted father Mordecai, the favor of the king. But listen, her legacy continues to this day. We're going to see that next week when we finish this study. For now, let's finish the story for today. Verses 15 through 19. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that day a a feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. So we'll focus on this Feast of Purim, as it is called, that was established in these last few verses. We'll talk about that next week. For now, I just want to highlight the fact that three times in this chapter, including twice in the verses that we just read, it says that in all of this fighting, after killing more than 75,000 of their enemies, the Jewish people laid no hands on the plunder, keeping in mind that by the king's own decree, they were given permission to take all they wanted. So why didn't they? Why leave all of that wealth untouched when they were given the legal right to take it as their own? It's because God's people refused to compromise God's command. Okay, Mordecai's decree was an exact reversal, nearly verbatim, of Haman's earlier decree, which allowed for plunder to be taken from the Jews. Mordecai was simply nullifying every element of Haman's decree which his own later, with his own later decree, which was ratified and disseminated by the king himself under his own government and authority. However, the Jewish people understood, listen, the execution of this second decree was actually under God's authority, governed by his ancient rules for holy war, which included taking no plunder, right? Which we see with Abram fighting for Sodom in Genesis 14, and with Joshua fighting for the promised land, devoting entire cities to destruction. It was called the Karim Principle. Then again, as commanded to Saul, fighting the Amalekites, where there were to be no survivors, no prisoners, no plunder, no exceptions, These Jews in Persia understood this very well, which speaks volumes of their own commitment to God's command that they were given every legal right and permission to loot and take plunder from those bent on killing them. And yet the author is very careful to point out three times that they laid no hands on the plunder. They refused, listen, they refused to compromise God's command even when the government they were living under told them they could, even when the culture they were living in told them they should, even when doing so would have immediately brought them material prosperity and elevated their standing in that society. We should all be paying very close attention to this message here because it's for God's people in every age. 
Because listen, the culture that we live in does not determine the principles that we live by. The laws of government do not supersede the laws of God. And no abundance of wealth or personal standing can ever justify even one ounce of compromise. Followers of Jesus Christ are to live according to the commands of God as recorded in his word. No excuses, no exemptions, no exceptions. We are called to live without compromise. So ask yourself, am I willing to concede some of the commands of his word if it means keeping the peace with those who I want to like me? Am I willing to turn a blind eye toward doing what's right, what is commanded of his followers, if I think it may preserve my standing at work or at school or among my neighbors or friends or even some family? Am I willing to walk out of my commitments if what is required to fulfill them no longer suits me? Am I willing to accept a watered-down version of the gospel from everyone if it keeps the message from being offensive to anyone? Am I living a life of compromise? It's important that we answer these questions with honesty because if we're going to live without compromise, then we have to stop taking our cues from whatever happens to be trending in our culture, even sometimes our church culture. We have to regard his word above politics and popular sentiment. We have to be willing to carry out his commands, even if it means turning down personal wealth and standing, because when we make compromises in order to pursue all of those other things, we may think we're preserving and promoting ourselves, but in truth, compromise always leads to loss. It never leads to gain. Compromise is the insidious, life-stealing, joy-robbing, strength-sapping enemy of the Christian life. It is treachery for the follower of Christ, the enemy of the Christian life, and it is the ruin of our testimony. But when we choose to live without compromise, and that is a choice that often has to be made daily, sometimes even moment by moment, when we make that choice, even when it would be so much easier to give up and to give in and to walk away, listen, the fullness of God's promises are realized in our lives. He fights on our behalf, and we get to experience the victory, the true gain that comes by living an uncompromising life. And as we do that, our lives not only become intensely purposeful as individuals, but listen, the church is empowered. Our testimony is emboldened, and His purposes are realized to their fullest in and through us, His people, when we choose to live without compromise. Let's pray.